Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. We're glad you're journeying with us, and we hope that you find value from the teachings. If you'd like to connect or support the mission of Grace and Peace Church, check us out at graceandpeacechurch.org or find us on Instagram or Facebook. Grace and Peace. We're going to be looking at the story of the prodigal son. And if you have your Bible with you, if you want to turn, if you want to open your phone, it's in uh, Luke chapter 15. And um, this story is, to me, it's like top of the list of powerful stories that has just an infinite amount of layers to it, right? So when Jesus tells this story, you're going to see here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like read through it, and then I'm going to teach a little bit on it. And then we're going to sit and reflect on it. And these last few weeks, I've been talking about how we're going to participate as a church. We're not just going to spectate. We're not just going to watch, look at a screen, read, um, and, or just listen. But we're going to actually engage with our hearts, um, with our soul, uh, with our mind, um, and, and actually engage in this way that we're going to look at another image that is given to us in the Lent Guide this week. Um, and again, this is like the different layers of... Lectio Divina, it's like divine reading, divine images, divine walking, divine audio. It's like all these uh, different ways that we can engage in our faith, that it doesn't have to be just reading the Bible. Like there's going to be different ways that God can speak to us um, through the Holy Spirit. And, um, and so this week's image, uh, I think, do I have it on the next slide? Uh, if we could pull that up. Um, this is a Rembrandt from, I think it was like 1669. really old image, right? But um, this is the prodigal son. This is the father. The prodigal son has returned, and that's the older son looking on him with disgust and jealousy and rage, okay? Which we'll get into here in a second. But that's the image that we're going to reflect on and that we're going to reflect on as a passage as well as throughout the week. Um, And so I hope that this story kind of just starts kind of like the... um, I don't know, the thought process or the engaging of uh, God's word in a creative, uh, interesting way. So um, to give some context to where this uh, story is told, um, Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners, and Pharisees are angry about this. Um, Their response in verse 2 in chapter 15 is, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're somehow angry about that. They're like, <laughs> this guy, this, this Jesus, like, I don't know what he thinks he can do, but he's hanging out with all of the worst people in society, like the outcasts. And, um, and so Jesus starts telling this story in response to the Pharisees or the religious leaders of that time. He tells this story in response to say, all right, so you're, you're disgusted with the fact that I'm sitting with outcasts in society. Let's talk about it. And he starts telling a story to kind of illustrate what it means to, um, to I think, have a heart for not only for God, but for others uh, in a really healthy way. And so uh, this is an, a call to engage in and value relationships um, with God and with each other. And I hope that that's kind of the overarching thing that we take away today, that you begin to see that there's two relationships that are priority, that will always be priority, and that'll influence and impact our lives is that relationship with each other and that relationship with God. This is what Jesus reiterates over and over. He's like, love God, love people, right? It's like he continually circles around that and brings it back because um, that's the heart of God. So 
Um, let's read Luke chapter 15. We're going to pick up in a verse 11, and it's going to go through 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. How many sons? Two. We've got to remember these numbers, all right? <clears throat> these are crucial. The younger one said to his father, like a true younger sibling. Just kidding. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, no. Um, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I'm going to avoid commenting. I'm going to come back and comment. All right. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. We'll come back to that if you want to highlight or underline things. I'll tell you when. Wild living is one of those things. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, uh, who, went, uh, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he's kind of hit rock bottom. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I set out to go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. That's one thing you want to underline, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 21, underline the whole entire thing and circle it, highlight it. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe. Best would be a key line right there, a key word. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a party and celebrate. For this is the son of mine. Was, uh, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So this is where a turn takes place in the passage. It's a really long passage that I'm reading, but I want you to see the turn that takes place as Jesus tells this story. So watch what happens at this point. Verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Which son was it? The older son. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, and he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. That's something to underline as well. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Another thing to underline, I've been working so hard and slaving for you and never disobeyed once. I'm the best. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Do you sense the jealousy, the rage, the anger? My son, the father said, this is where you just highlight like crazy. You're always with me, 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father has this perspective that I think Jesus wants us to learn from. Um, The perspective that we see here. So let's go back to the very beginning to kind of like run through this whole thing. But you start to see already as we're reading it, there's layers to this that we need to unpack. And I'm probably going to miss some of the layers because there's so many that I can't even cover in 20 minutes, okay? Um, But the first thing, the first line you see is the son asked for his inheritance and the father divided his property. Divided it out in two and gave it to him. This asking of the youngest son to get his inheritance before the father's dead is kind of like saying you're dead to me in that culture, all right? It's like giving the biggest middle finger you've ever given to your dad, right? And he says, I want it, and I'm out of here, right? So he takes it. Youngest brother takes it, and what does he do with it? Squanders it, right? Um, So the son demands the finances. Father gives it to him, which is a generous uh, part on his part, right? Like just to be like, all right, you can take your half, you can do your thing, and um, and makes it happen. And so then, um, as we see this, he basically spends it on what? Do you guys remember the term? Squandered his wealth in wild living. What's up? My heroes here. <laughs> I just got to point this out. <laughs> no, it's good to see you, man. Um, <clears throat> Wild living. What comes to mind when you think of wild living? And don't yell it out because we don't want to judge anybody in this room, okay? Um, but what comes to mind? Like, start to think about that. <laughs> yeah. He's the younger brother, so he's probably, yeah, college age, uh, doing his thing. So wild living. When you think of wild living, you could probably come up with a good list in your mind right now, right? You could probably think of just all the different things that maybe in your life that you would consider yourself as uh, living out some wild living. Um, but uh, we see him just completely just live into what we would consider like worldly pleasures, right? The thing that you want to chase after, the thing that you think will make you happy, and he's got all of the money, right? Um, the, uh, this idea or this uh, term prodigal, it, it literally means, I'll give you the definition here, it says spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. So he goes full prodigal with the finances that he gets. Just goes and says, I'm going to spend it like crazy. I'm going to go waste it. I'm going to be extravagant. I'm going to live it up. Um, Basically consuming it. And we're going to talk about the father's love here. And I'm just going to point this out right off the bat. That the father's love that we saw as he returned after all of this wastefulness was also prodigal. And the term prodigal can also be used for the wasteful, generous love of God, right? So maybe you've heard, uh, I think Timothy Keller has a book called Prodigal God. Um, Amazing perspective on like the wasteful, extravagant love of God. And so there's a contrast that happens here between the wastefulness of the younger son and also the extravagant wastefulness of the father that says, I don't care what you've done, I love you. And so... This idea of squandering, this wild living, um, there's, uh, I think in our culture, I think Matt and I were talking about this, raise your hand if you could have all of 
these kind of resources right now, would you say that that's a good thing or a bad thing by show of hands? Good thing, <laughs> right? All these resources that he got, like he basically inherited all of this money, everything that he had, like our culture tells us that's a good thing, right? Like in our minds, we're like, he's got a lot of money. He should be set for life, right? Like I would take that, you know? Um, and, uh, and so having everything Basically, he's set for the rest of his life, and yet he ruins it. And in our culture, like, we would see this, this situation as success. Like, he basically, he's like, he's arrived. He's gotten everything he wants, everything that he could ever need, right, is covered. And yet, what he does with it is the hinge. What he does with it is what messes it up. He could have taken and done great things, but he takes it and messes it up. Um, research uh, has gone into figuring out what makes people happy. And our culture says that if you had all those resources like this younger brother had, you would be happy, right? Our culture says that. And, um, and actually, I looked up this um, study that now has been kind of like critiqued a little bit. But um, what would you guys say uh, satisfies people in our culture right now? What keeps people satisfied? Right? TV. <laughs> would you say a certain amount of money would keep people satisfied? Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, apparently, there's a certain dollar amount that keeps us happy. Um, and I don't know if I put it in the, on the screen or not, but a 2018 study from Purdue University uh, used a much wider data from the Gallup World Poll and found that the ideal income point for individuals is $95,000. You're going to be happy if you got 95 grand, right? Um, yeah, not in California. For life satisfaction. And it said 60 to 75,000 for emotional well-being. All right? Just to be emotionally well, 60 to 75. I'm like, really? Um, when people earned more than 105,000, their happiness levels decreased. All right? So I'm sure it's different. Like, you could probably scale up a little bit for inflation, right? But what, what they found was that at a certain point, like, more money didn't make you more happy. It didn't change anything, right? That's the moral of the story. Um, and so to say that money makes us happy, I don't know. And to think that this younger son thought that that would make him happy, that having all that would work out, um, Jesus points out in the story that it doesn't. That he literally went to just the extremes to spend this money in all the possible ways that would bring happiness, joy, contentment, and freedom, right? But it ends up being something where he squandered it, he wasted it, um, and it ends up doing nothing for him. What we see here is that that doesn't satisfy. And so what we see is this layer that's woven in that Jesus tells us that there is only one thing that will satisfy. Um, all the resources in the world won't do that for you. All the money in the world won't do that for you. All the joy, and again, that's why I asked you guys, like, what is, like, if you want to think about, like, what is wild living? Those are all things that you would think would be something that he would have found joy, contentment, satisfaction in. But you find out that he's now with the pigs, right? So none of that worked. 
And what Jesus points out there is that none of that will ever work. None of that will ever satisfy. None of that will ever make you happy and content. And um, I want to read a really long C.S. Lewis quote because I believe that if we're going to engage in our minds and reflect and really uh, sit with something, I think it's powerful not just to throw a little portion of a quote, but to get the full context of it. C.S. Lewis, amazing writer. Many of you probably already know who he is, um, but wasn't a believer early in his life. Turned away from God and wanted nothing to do with it because of like the witness that his family had on him. And then um, later in life became part of this crew of people um, that I think it was at Oxford, where he hung out with this crew called the Inklings, um, this crew of writers, philosophers, um, that sat and, and talked about theology. And these other guys, like J.R.R. Tolkien, had an influence. They were believers. And uh, C.S. Lewis wanted nothing to do with it and said, no, there's no way, this can't be real. And this is one of like the defining moments where he narrows down what it means to follow God and why it is valuable and important, Okay. And so when we talk about finances, resources, those things making us happy, he, he really he articulates it beautifully. So check this out. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's probably a line that you've seen in like Instagram posts, right? Um, But he goes on, he says, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, right? That doesn't prove that it's a fraud, but probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy He's like, none of this stuff was ever meant to fill that gap of who God is, but only point to something, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. So he acknowledges that there's great things about this earth, like money can make you happy to a certain point, right, and take care of certain needs but it's never going to be the thing that fulfills. And the other thing, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. What we see here is Jesus point out that those things will never satisfy. What we see here is that C.S. Lewis discovered that after, I'm sure he spent a lot of his life chasing after all of these things and trying to figure out what is the thing that is truly most satisfying. And he said, I tried all that stuff and none of it worked, but there's something beyond all of this that has to be the explanation for what truly satisfies. And And he labels it, and he says, I need to go back to my father, right? The next thing that the son does is he says, I have sinned against heaven and you. Returns back to the father. Recognizes even while he's in that pig pen, I have sinned against my father and against you, right? Like So he's like against heaven and against my father. Like this relationship between God and people. He says, I've messed it up. I've lost track. 
And so then he goes back, and what happens? The father sees him and runs to him. And culturally, that wouldn't have been a thing that a father would do. A father would sit on the porch and wait for them, the son to come back, right? Not run to him. So what Jesus says here is very controversial, very edgy, right? Like He's like, no, this father, he gets off his butt and runs to him because of how much he loves his son. And what does that tell us about the heart of God, right? Again, this is a, an analogy, a story about God and his love for us and the relationship he has with us. This extravagant love that the father has, he throws a party, he gets him a robe, he gets him a ring. What does he kill? The fatted calf, the best meat ever. Throws this party, this extravagant, prodigal kind of love, this prodigal love that says, I'm just going to, I'm going to waste everything on you because I love you so much. Then there's the older brother, off in the field, watching what happens, and what is his response? This is where the turn happens. Everything I have is yours, is what the father says. The son is so jealous, so angry, so enraged, like he goes and wastes all of our family's money and you just come and you bring him the best. You come and put a robe around him, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger, throw a giant party. <clears throat> I'm the one that it says, I followed all the rules, right? I did all the right things. I did everything the way we were supposed to do it as a family. And you don't even care. And the father's response is, everything I have is yours. You've always had all these things. You have access to all this. But your brother, he was lost and now is found. The father's response is teaching him that like, yeah, you can follow the rules and you can be jealous of what he's all about, but you got to understand that I love you just as much. Like the rules that you follow, just because you follow all the rules doesn't make me love you more, right? When we talk about fasting, when we talk about Lent, giving up all those things doesn't make God love us more. He's not like, oh, now I love you because you gave up social media for a season. He's like, no, I, I love you because you are my son or my daughter. Like, I love you because I created you, not because of how well you perform or how bad you are. And what you see is this contrast between a brother that just squanders everything, goes crazy and is wasteful, foolish, and a brother who says, I follow the rules and do everything. Both are loved. But what you see here is the younger brother acknowledged that he had a broken relationship with the father, that he had made money a priority over the relationship, that he had made himself a priority over the relationship with the father. And so his older sibling, I believe, I think I can connect with that. Like, I think we can connect with that when we see other people maybe living their lives, like throwing life away, caring about things that they shouldn't care about, um, it's easy for us to judge, right? It's easy for us to be the older sibling and say, well, what the heck? Like, why do they get to do all this stuff? And like, they're just blowing it as far as being a Christian or they're messing up their life or whatever judgmental comment we have of their wild living and saying they're worse off, they're doing it wrong. But what does God's, what does Jesus tell us about God's love for them, for us? 
on either side of that, if we're older sibling or younger sibling, he says, it's regardless of what you do. I love you. I care for you. Everything I have is yours. It's all available to you. This is the extravagant, generous love of God. It's always there for us. And yet, we miss out on that often. And so what I see here is this, the difference between active participation as a, family, as a family member, loving the Father, caring for what the Father cares for, um, recognizing that we are His sons and daughters um, is such a key part of it. And it requires this active participation in our relationship with God. That like, we want to, des- to do the same things that He does, to care for the same things that He cares for, um, to have the same heart that God has. Um, so I want to ask this question, and I'm going to close with this, and we're going to have a little kind of a, a time of reflection on this image. Um, but what is your perspective on God's love right now? Is it dependent on what you do, how good you are, what you've done that's horrible this week? Do you feel like God loves you less? Um, what we see Jesus talk about here as he's sitting with sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees who are judging him for doing that is he tells a story about extravagant love that says regardless of what you're doing regardless of how good you think you are or how bad you've been he says I love you I deeply care for you and that's it it's there's nothing else it doesn't require anything else it's a it's a posture on our part to say thank you God I recognize I messed up. I want to be your son. I want to be in your arms. I want to be with you. And so um, we'll pull up that image that, um, that I think as we understand the story, we start to see the judgmental brother looking down on the brother, receiving the love of the father, the hug, Um, regardless of what he's done. And I would just encourage you to read this Thomas Merton prayer. And let's reflect for a little bit. Um, Allow these words to wash over you, to maybe be a reminder um, of where we're at. Maybe you're the older brother, angry that others aren't doing it the way they should be doing it. Or maybe you're the younger brother that's... um, acknowledging a way of life that doesn't work, acknowledging or chasing after things that doesn't fulfill. Um, And I, I would just encourage you to be reminded of the love of the Father regardless of that. And so maybe just think about the story that we've just read and we've talked about. Um, But read through this poem and we'll just take a minute as Matt plays.
on that image, I was looking at the characters that are watching in the background, observing this extravagant prodigal love of the Father. Um, just like this story has so many layers, that picture is a thousand words, right? It's like there's so many layers to it, but I think of like the witness that that would have had on those other characters that are watching in and watching how a family interacts. And I believe that as we interact as a community, as a church, I think others are watching how we interact, how we love for one another, um, how we recognize that God's love is there for us 24-7, regardless of what we've done or haven't done or how holy we think we are. Um, God loves us. And, um, and I hope and pray that that is the witness that we have as a community that the heart of the Father is, uh, it's extravagant. It's that extravagant. And we see this in Philippians 2. I just want to read this verse because it describes Jesus and what he does and his heart and how he continually pours it out and he calls us to have the same thing because I talked about how we need to have this relationship with each other and with God. Watch this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't use it selfishly. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's what we're going to in a couple weeks is the cross and then Easter resurrection, right? The fact that he conquers death, conquers all of that destructive uh, pattern and way that exists in our world um, once and for all. Um, but he gives us that choice. He gives us that freedom to be a part of that or not. And 
Um, and in our relationships, he says, live that same way, that humility, that same way that Jesus models that for, um, for us. We are to model that in the world that we live in. And so as we go into the rest of this week, uh, my heart, my prayer is always that, um, that we would find opportunities in the relationships that we have to be a blessing, to be a reflection of that love. Um, and, and that's how we continue to be on mission. That's how we continue to be the kind of community that, uh, that Jesus invites us to be. So, um, yeah, let me pray. Father, thank you for time together to reflect on stories like this that have infinite amount of layers that can speak into our heart and our mind. And so as we go into this week, continue to recall these, um, these layers of this story that, um, that transform our hearts and transform our minds to become more like you, Jesus. We want to continue to be more humble, more extravagant in the love that we have for one another and for you, God, um, that, uh, that has no end, that just continues just to, to throw a party and, um, and, and, and do things that just don't make sense sometimes, but, um, but Lord, in your kingdom it does. And so, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit in us and work through us as we leave this place. In your name, amen. Let me read our benediction. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone and know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. And let's share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment every single day. Grace and peace as you live into this.